Book Seven, Chapter Five of the Wars of the Jews. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wars of the Jews by Josephus, translated by William Whiston, Chapter Five, concerning the Sabbatic River which Titus saw as he was journeying through Syria and how the people of Antioch came with a petition to Titus against the Jews, but were rejected by him, as also concerning Titus's and Vespasian's triumph. 1. Now Titus Caesar tarried some time at Veritas, as we told you before. He thence removed, and exhibited magnificent shows in all those cities of Syria through which he went, and made use of the captive Jews as public instances of the destruction of that nation. He then saw a river as he went along, of such a nature as deserves to be recorded in history. It runs in the middle between Arcia, belonging to Agrippa's kingdom, and Raphania. It hath somewhat very peculiar in it, for when it runs, its current is strong and has plenty of water, after which its springs fail for six days together, and leave its channel dry, as one may see, after which days it runs on the seventh day as it did before, and as though it had undergone no change at all. It hath also been observed to keep this order perpetually and exactly, whence it is that they call it the Sabbatic River, that name being taken from the sacred seventh day among the Jews. Footnote. Since in these latter ages this Sabbatic River, once so famous, which by Josephus's account here ran every seventh day and rested on six, but according to Pliny ran perpetually on six days and rested every seventh, though it no way appears by either of their accounts that the seventh day of this river was the Jewish seventh day or Sabbath, is quite vanished, I shall add no more about it. Only see Dr. Hudson's note. In Verenius's geography, the reader will find several instances of such periodical fountains and rivers, though none of their periods were that of a just week as of old this appears to have been. And footnote. 2. But when the people of Antioch were informed that Titus was approaching, they were so glad at it that they could not keep within their walls, but hastened away to give him the meeting. Nay, they proceeded as far as thirty furlongs and more, with that intention. These were not the men only, but a multitude of women also with their children did the same. And when they saw him coming up to them, they stood on both sides of the way, and stretched out their right hands, saluting him, and making all sorts of acclamations to him, and turned back together with him. They also, among all the acclamations they made to him, besought him all the way they went to eject the Jews out of their city. Yet did not Titus at all yield to this their petition, but gave them the bare hearing of it quietly. However, the Jews were in a great deal of terrible fear, under the uncertainty they were in what his opinion was, and what he would do to them. For Titus did not stay at Antioch, but continued his progress immediately to Zugma, which lies upon the Euphrates, whither came to him messengers from Vologeses, king of Parthia, and brought him a crown of gold upon the victory he had gained over the Jews, which he accepted of and feasted the king's messengers, and then came back to Antioch and when the senate and people of Antioch earnestly entreated him to come upon their theatre, where their whole multitude was assembled and expected him, he complied with great humility. But when they pressed him with such earnestness, and continually begged of him that he would eject the Jews out of their city, he gave them this very pertinent answer, 
How can this be done, since that country of theirs, whither the Jews must be obliged then to retire, is destroyed, and no place will receive them besides? Whereupon the people of Antioch, when they had failed of success in this their first request, made him a second, for they desired that he would order those tables of brass to be removed on which the Jews' privileges were engraven. However, Titus would not grant that neither, but permitted the Jews of Antioch to continue to enjoy the very same privileges in that city which they had before, and then departed for Egypt. And as he came to Jerusalem in his progress, and compared the melancholy condition he saw it then in, with the ancient glory of the city, and called to mind the greatness of its present ruins, as well as its ancient splendor, he could not but pity the destruction of the city, so far was he from boasting that so great and goodly a city as that was had been taken from him by force. Nay, he frequently cursed those that had been the authors of the revolt, and had brought such a punishment upon the city, insomuch that it openly appeared that he did not desire that such a calamity as this punishment of theirs amounted to should be a demonstration of his courage. Yet was there no small quantity of the riches that had been in that city still found among its ruins, a great deal of which the Romans dug up, but the greatest part was discovered by those who were captives, and so they carried it away, I mean the gold and the silver, and the rest of that most precious furniture which the Jews had, and which the owners had treasured up underground against the uncertain fortunes of war. 3. So Titus took the journey he intended into Egypt, and passed over the desert very suddenly, and came to Alexandria, and took up a resolution to go to Rome by sea. And as he was accompanied by two legions, he sent each of them again to the places whence they had before come. The fifth he sent to Mysia, and the fifteenth to Pannonia. As for the leaders of the captives, Simon and John, with the other seven hundred men, whom he had selected out of the rest as being eminently tall and handsome of body, he gave order that they should be soon carried to Italy, as resolving to produce them in his triumph. So when he had had a prosperous voyage to his mind, the city of Rome behaved itself in his reception, and their meeting him at a distance, as it did in the case of his father. But what made the most splendid appearance in Titus's opinion was, when his father met him and received him. But still the multitude of the citizens conceived the greatest joy when they saw them all three together. Footnote. Vespasian and his two sons, Titus and Domitian, and footnote, as they did at this time. Nor were there many days overpassed when they determined to have but one triumph that should be common to both of them on account of the glorious exploits they had performed, although the Senate had decreed each of them a separate triumph by himself. So when notice had been given beforehand of the day appointed for this pompous solemnity to be made on account of their victories, not one of the immense multitude was left in the city, but everybody went out so far as to gain only a station where they might stand, and left only such a passage as was necessary for those that were to be seen to go along it. 4. Now all the soldiery marched out beforehand by companies, and in their several ranks, under their several commanders, in the night-time, and were about the gates, not of the upper palaces, but those near the temple of Isis for there it was that the emperors had rested the foregoing night. And as soon as ever it was day, Vespasian and Titus came out crowned with laurel, and clothed in those ancient purple habits which were proper to their family, 
and then went as far as Octavian's walks. For there it was that the senate and the principal rulers, and those that had been recorded as of the equestrian order, waited for them. Now a tribunal had been erected before the cloisters, and ivory chairs had been set upon it, when they came and sat down upon them. Whereupon the soldiery made an acclamation of joy to them immediately, and all gave them attestations of their valor. While they were themselves without their arms, and only in their silken garments, and crowned with laurel. Then Vespasian accepted of these shouts of theirs, but while they were still disposed to go on in such acclamations, he gave them a signal of silence. And when everybody entirely held their peace, he stood up, and covering the greatest part of his head with his cloak, he put up the accustomed solemn prayers. The like prayers did Titus put up also. After which prayers Vespasian made a short speech to all the people, and then sent away the soldiers to a dinner prepared for them by the emperors. Then did he retire to that gate which was called the gate of the pomp, because pompous shows do always go through that gate. There it was that they tasted some food, and when they had put on their triumphal garments, and had offered sacrifices to the gods that were placed at the gate, they sent the triumph forward, and marched through the theatres, that they might be the more easily seen by the multitudes. 5. Now it is impossible to describe the multitude of the shows as they deserve, and the magnificence of them all, such indeed as a man could not easily think of as performed, either by the labor of workmen, or the variety of riches, or the rarities of nature. For almost all such curiosities as the most happy men ever get by piecemeal, were here one heaped on another, and those both admirable and costly in their nature, and all brought together on that day demonstrated the vastness of the dominions of the Romans. For there was here, to be seen, a mighty quantity of silver and gold and ivory, contrived into all sorts of things, and did not appear as carried along in pompous show only, but, as a man may say, running along like a river. Some parts were composed of the rarest purple hangings, and so carried along, and others accurately represented to the life what was embroidered by the arts of the Babylonians. There were also precious stones that were transparent, some set in crowns of gold, and some in other ouches, as the workmen pleased, and of these such a vast number were brought, that we could not but thence learn how vainly we imagined any of them to be rarities. The images of the gods were also carried, being as well wonderful for their largeness, as made very artificially, and with great skill of the workmen. Nor were any of these images of any other than very costly materials, and many species of animals were brought, every one in their own natural ornaments. The men also who brought every one of these shows were great multitudes, and adorned with purple garments, all over interwoven with gold. Those that were chosen for carrying these pompous shows, having also about them such magnificent ornaments, as were both extraordinary and surprising. Besides these, one might see that even the great number of the captives was not unadorned, while the variety that was in their garments, and their fine texture, concealed from the sight the deformity of their bodies. But what afforded the greatest surprise of all was the structure of the pageants that were borne along, for indeed he that met them could not but be afraid that the bearers would not be able firmly enough to support them, such was their magnitude, for many of them were so made that they were on three or even four stories, one above another, 
the magnificence also of their structure afforded one both pleasure and surprise, for upon many of them were laid carpets of gold. There was also wrought gold and ivory fastened about them all, and many resemblances of the war, and those in several ways, and variety of contrivances, affording a most lively portraiture of itself. For there was to be seen a happy country laid waste, and entire squadrons of enemies slain, while some of them ran away, and some were carried into captivity, with walls of great altitude and magnitude overthrown and ruined by machines, with the strongest fortifications taken, and the walls of most populous cities upon the tops of hills seized on, and an army pouring itself within the walls, as also every place full of slaughter, and supplications of the enemies, when they were no longer able to lift up their hands in way of opposition. Fire also sent upon temples was here represented, and houses overthrown and falling upon their owners. Rivers also, after they came out of a large and melancholy desert, ran down, not into a land cultivated, nor as drink for men or of cattle, but through a land still on fire upon every side. For the Jews related that such a thing they had undergone during this war. Now the workmanship of these representations was so magnificent and lively in the construction of the things, that it exhibited what had been done to such as did not see it, as if they had been there really present. On the top of every one of these pageants was placed the commander of the city that was taken, and the manner wherein he was taken. Moreover, there followed those pageants a great number of ships, and for the other spoils they were carried in great plenty. But for those that were taken in the temple of Jerusalem, they made the greatest figure of them all, that is, the golden table, of the weight of many talents, the candlestick also, that was made of gold, though its construction were now changed from that which we made use of, for its middle shaft was fixed upon a basis, and the small branches were produced out of it to a great length, having the likeness of a trident in their position, and had every one a socket made of brass, for a lamp at the tops of them. These lamps were in number seven, and represented the dignity of the number seven among the Jews. And the last of all the spoils was carried the law of the Jews. After these spoils passed by a great many men, carrying the images of victory, whose structure was entirely either of ivory or of gold. After which Vespasian marched in the first place, and Titus followed him. Domitian also rode along with them, and made a glorious appearance, and rode on a horse that was worthy of admiration. Footnote. See the representations of these Jewish vessels as they still stand on Titus's triumphal arch at Rome, in Reland's very curious book, De Spolis Turnpli, throughout. But what things are chiefly to be noted are these. 1. That Josephus says that the candlestick here carried in this triumph was not thoroughly like that which was used in the temple, which appears in the number of the little knobs and flowers in that on the triumphal arch, not well agreeing with Moses's description, Exodus 25, 31-36. 2. The smallness of the branches in Josephus, compared with the thickness of those on that arch. 3. That the law or Pentateuch does not appear on that arch at all, though Josephus, an eyewitness, assures us that it was carried in this procession all which things deserve the consideration of the inquisitive reader. End footnote. 6. Now the last part of this pompous show was at the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, whither when they were come, they stood still. 
for it was the Romans' ancient custom to stay till somebody brought the news that the general of the enemy was slain. This general was Simon, the son of Giorus, who had then been led in this triumph among the captives. A rope had also been put upon his head, and he had been drawn into a proper place in the forum, and had withal been tormented by those that drew him along. And the law of the Romans required that malefactors condemned to die should be slain there. Accordingly, when it was related that there was an end of him, and all the people had set up a shout for joy, they then began to offer those sacrifices which they had consecrated in the prayers used in such solemnities, which, when they had finished, they went away to the palace. And as for some of the spectators, the emperors entertained them at their own feast. And for all the rest, there were noble preparations made for feasting at home. For this was a festival day to the city of Rome, as celebrated for the victory obtained by their army over their enemies, for the end that was now put to their civil miseries, and for the commencement of their hopes for future prosperity and happiness. 7. After these triumphs were over, and after the affairs of the Romans were settled on the surest foundations, Vespasian resolved to build a temple to peace, which was finished in so short a time, and in so glorious a manner, as was beyond all human expectation and opinion. For he having now by providence a vast quantity of wealth, besides what he had formerly gained in his other exploits, he had his temple adorned with pictures and statues. For in this temple were collected and deposited all such rarities as men aforetime used to wander all over the habitable world to see, when they had a desire to see one of them after another. He also laid up therein those golden vessels and instruments that were taken out of the Jewish temple, as ensigns of his glory. But still he gave order that they should lay up their law, and the purple veils of the holy place, in the royal palace itself, and keep them there. End of Book 7, Chapter 5